The flight deck is made possible by the generous donors supporting the Museum of Flight. And Alaska Airlines, committed to enhancing our community's cultural and economic vitality for over 35 years. You can support this podcast and the Museum of Flight's other initiatives across the United States and the world by visiting museumofflight.org slash podcast. Hello and welcome to The Flight Deck, the podcast of the Museum of Flight in Seattle, Washington. I am your host, Sean Mobley. Today we're kicking off a five-episode miniseries called Failure is Not an Option. As we celebrate the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 mission, we're going to hear interesting and insightful stories from a wild variety of people over these five episodes touching on this theme. To start us off, I welcome former NASA astronaut Dottie Metcalf-Lindenberger to the show for a crowdsourced Q&A. Listeners from around the world submitted questions for Dottie, and we ended up chatting about astronaut bands, sweating in space, and how she handles the fear of letting not just herself down, but generations of young women who look to female astronauts like her as role models and hope for their own future. I want to hear more about Max Q. Uh, (laughs) It was a fun band to be in. I was asked to be in it, I think, because I was on a National Outdoor Leadership School backpacking trip with Chris Hadfield. And Chris was um, a leading guitar player and singer in the band. And we climbed this peak with the the team. And at the top, I sang a song while one of my friends did like a prayer. Anyway, then Chris asked me if I wanted to be on Max Q, which I had never sung in like a band, in a rock band. I've always been a choir singer. So I grew up singing choir in church and then in high school and even in college a little bit, I sang choir. But Max Q started way before, before Chris Hatfield and I showed up. It had um, been- And what is Max Q? Just oh the, yeah. yeah. So it's a, it's a all astronaut rock band, but it's also important because it comes from the physics um, equation for um, max dynamic pressure. And so it's kind of the geeky, but fun (laughs) term for a band. And we played covers and we always pointed out that this was not our day job, but uh, some of the band members are very talented instrument players and singers. So I'm not going to say I was, I just had fun. (laughs) I don't think a lot of people realize there's an all-astronaut band out there. Does it still exist as um, an entity? They will still sometimes get together and play. It doesn't – no, we tried to right. um, pass it on to the next astronaut group, but they were very, very busy, right? Like, So our office at one time had been over 100 astronauts when I came in, and then we had attrition down to about 60 when I was retiring. Mm-hmm. And you know, just everyone was very busy, and that was one more thing that was hard to add on a plate. Absolutely. The theme for a lot of this summer's episodes is failure is not an option. What's a time in your life that you've faced a failure and how did you learn from it? Well, yeah, um, I think that phrase is very important to the situation, right? That situation was we have got to get these crew members back. We don't want to watch their lives perish in front of us. Mm -hmm. But failure is very important. In fact, we know that's one of the best ways to learn in life. Probably one of the biggest early failures I had was as a sixth grader, I ran the 600-yard dash and took dead last. But that was really critical because it 
it launched this part of my life where I wanted to become an athlete. And later I would go on to be a college runner, not at the NCAA uh, division, I was NAIA, but I ended up being a very good runner. Um, and so by failing in that race or taking dead last, there was only <laughs> about six girls that ran it. So I think showing up on that starting line was important. Mm -hmm. Um, but it would also, it gave me a goal and I realized that goal was going to be very important as I started to learn more about what astronauts do, um, is that you need to be athletic and you don't have to be an athlete, but you need to be athletic. Um, and so it really started me down this path of working towards being an athlete. And so in middle school, I started doing sports and then I found running in high school. <laughs> Yeah, and here you are. And here I am, and I still run. <laughs> How would you define failure? I mean, you kind of touched on that a little bit, I think, actually, in here. Yeah, well, I think, like, at the time, it felt like, you know, I mean, I felt like I was last. But if you step back now and look at it, like, only a few people even showed up to that line. So to me, actual failure is not showing up and not being seen and participating in something that you might care about or have or want to have a stake in. So um, I try to let young people and my family members and even remind myself when I feel like I'm having setbacks or if something doesn't feel like I'm succeeding, I have to remind people that you're showing up. And um, there's really good researchers that talk about that. One of my favorites is Brene Brown. But, um, but taking that risk and um, that is the beginning of success. And there are going to be setbacks for sure, but you are going to learn from those and you're going to be surrounded by people that will help you move forward. Well, we got a couple of questions that came in from listeners over social media. A question here from Benjamin S. from Washington, D.C. I guess apropos for Washington, D.C. <laughs> resident asked, do people fight about politics and space too? I mean, if you're up on the International Space Station, you have people from all over the world. That's right. I, it, it, I don't need to leave the country to have <laughs> arguments about politics. So how, how do you navigate that? Right. So the thing I really like about space is that there isn't room to have fights about things that you don't have control over. So we have our, within NASA and within the Russian Space Agency and the Canadian Space Agency, we have people that work out and negotiate for the way politics kind of trickles down with funding or with policies, but we don't have to deal with that as the astronauts and cosmonauts. In fact, we see each other as teammates I mean, very important and critical teammates. And I think that makes us better. So I always like in sci-fi movies, what's coming to mind is like The Martian, where the Chinese come and help in, in the pursuit. And so I think that is a good illustration of science or space being above the discussions and fights down on the ground. Mm -hmm. I think that we just don't have room for that. Yeah. We, we're trying to move forward. Janusz from Poland asked, wow. uh, what astronauts do with their sweat in zero gravity? Are there just like sweat droplets floating around the space shuttle <laughs> and the ISS? Or, right. Or That's really them? kind of cool <laughs> question because I totally noticed this um, <laughs> and had a great way of dealing with it. In the space shuttle, we had a essentially like a bicycle mm -hmm. in, on the mid-deck. 
and sweat builds up and it doesn't run anywhere, right? Because it doesn't have gravity to, to um, have it run somewhere. So it starts making these bubbles on your skin. And what I did was I took, there was a vent that you could put right down on you, fresh air blowing across you and that felt so good. And then I had handy a washcloth to just wipe the sweat because it it's just uncomfortable that it's building and it's not helping do what it's right. supposed it's to do. it's not doing its job. <laughs> it's right. right. And so it doesn't go, I mean, just like we watch the water droplets and the, mm-hmm. um, it would keep clinging to your skin until enough of like, uh, if you sweat so much, but no one right. really does. So everyone does some sort of towel, washcloth. Uh, some folks have put little porta fans on in front of the running treadmill just to kind of keep the air, but find a vent, you know, what can you do <laughs> to keep air going over you? Speaking of vents, I've heard a rumor that you chose your sleeping spot very strategically when you were on the space shuttle. Well, one of the pl- – so I slept a good chunk of the time in the airlock, which is great because it has transfer of air across it, and it's just really nice. I'm sorry. That just sounds terrifying. <laughs> oh, well, it was in, in the space – it's in the space shuttle airlock. So you can see that over in the full fuselage yep, trainer here in at the, the Mise Flight. Yeah. Of course, it used to be the airlock for – and was for the last Hubble flight. But mm-hmm. when we're docked to space station, that's the tunnel in between space station and our vehicle. So it was fun. And Stephanie and I slept in there and we called it the the women's den. <laughs> <laughs> A question came from the Royal Aviation Museum of Western Canada. They asked, did you ever have overwhelming fears that would make you feel like quitting? And how did you overcome that? Wow, such an interesting question. Well, if we go back to our failure is not an option, this is a thing that came up for me. It's like, I don't want to fail because I feel like as a woman and as an educator, like I want to do a good job. So how do you turn something that could feel daunting into something productive? Well, we learned that from athletics, music, um, performances, speaking. It's to not focus on like the failure piece, but focus on how can I be the very best so that that doesn't happen, right? So studying for my exams, practicing muscle memory of being in the T38 and like on the ground, just practicing in the simulator so that then I'm ready to go do that in the plane. And and like I try to tell young people and remind myself, hard work is part of the joy, but it's how you overcome some of these pieces. And so um, it's taking those nervous butterflies or the anxieties of the possibility of failure and putting it into an actual action that's productive and not going to paralyze you and makes you go forward and go forward in a really positive way. Right. Well, kind of along that line then, you know, uh, another question, this came from Lauren M., who's a teacher in mm-hmm. Madison, Wisconsin. She asked, what would you advice would you have for teachers? You're a teacher yourself. Yeah, right. What advice would you have for teachers on helping them, especially get more girls, kids of any gender, but especially girls, interested in pursuing science and, and STEM? Yeah, well, I think what we're trying to do, and I think that's why museums are a critical piece, and um, while while hands-on education is critical, and outside 
experimentation is to do stuff, right? Robotics has been a great avenue for young people to get into STEM. Going and participating in small groups where you feel a part of the team and aren't singled out or maybe don't feel as much like you belong when you're in a smaller group, like you have to belong and, and lead. And so clubs and all these different ways. And so how do you do that in the classroom? Breaking kids down into teams, engaging them with hands-on learning, focusing on the step-by-step versus like the big goal far off, you know, breaking things down and making it uh, manageable. To wrap it up, we, we had a couple people who asked uh, the same kind of question. Uh, Lucas Lynn Fors, who's a high school sophomore. Marin M., who, who's in Bothell, she's eight. Uh, ah, cool. She, she asked, uh, what made you want to become an astronaut and what advice would you give to Marin and other eight-year-olds and high school sophomores who really want to pursue that dream of going to space. Right. So like a bunch of things happened about the time I was eight. Uh, I was a third grader and Sally Ride flew in space. Um, The movie The Right Stuff came out and folks were starting to talk soon after about Halley's Comet. So all these things were happening and my parents were paying attention. So I really admire my parents, but I was also starting to pay attention. And I realized that for young girls, because of Sally, that it was possible for me to go to space. Now, years later, of course, I would learn, oh, Valentina Tereshkova had gone as well, but we didn't talk about that. She was, again, there was that Cold War, she's Russian, and that just wasn't part of what we were learning. Yeah, being eight, what, like, it was, I could tell my parents really admired what the um, early astronauts had done. They had been young when Apollo, the Apollo missions were happening they would speak so highly of it. We were going to the museum, to the planetarium to see all these return imagery because we were now getting information back from our Voyager missions. And so it was just like exciting. And I could tell people were excited and I wanted to be a part of that. But, you know, as an eight-year-old, you don't really know how to become (laughs) a part of that. So then this is the piece of all the different people that play a part in your life, your parents, uh, the your teachers, of course, going to museums, going to camps. And this started layering together, and that's how I then would eventually become an astronaut, is all those pieces coming together, I guess. <laughs> I think you hit on an important point that I think it's lost a lot of times in discussions about representation, too, about why it's so important to have women like you out at the front talking about this stuff because, I mean, there's a video that you can find that was made around the Apollo program. I think we have a copy of it here that we've circulated internally where they were asking kids, do you want to go to space? And I think it was a Canadian movie uh, film and this was the introduction and all the kids were saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they were all boys. And then one of the last people they asked was a girl. And she said, no, girls don't go to space. Mm-hmm. That, that, that movie was not making that as a point. I think that that point that we're just making a film. Mm-hmm. But there were no women That's going right. to space. In and fact, that was they not were the actively messaging. turned away. You yeah. know, women had wanted to be a part of the program and were declined. And now we're seeing those barriers break down. But in mm-hmm. our military and as fighter pilots and the message of being other and that isn't just for women. There are others that fit into the category of mm-hmm. being that other and being left out or told that they don't belong. And so that's really important, I think, for then the turnaround and also changing that perception and being visible. And I, I think sometimes people question, you know, why do we have 
programs at the museum, for example, that are so focused on girls, shouldn't it be for everybody? Well, of course it's for everybody. But mm -hmm. as you said, not everybody sees themselves there. And so it just takes that extra effort sometimes. So thank you for, for being such a significant, I know not just at the museum, but such an advocate out in, in the nation, in the world. Thank you. Well, Dottie, I wish we had more time to chat. Thank you so much. Thanks for all this crowdsourcing questions. It's fun to like go from across our country to around the world yeah. and then come right back to local. Absolutely. So thanks for doing that. Enjoy the rest of your day here at the museum. Will do. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of The Flight Deck, the podcast of the Museum of Flight in Seattle, Washington. This is episode one of our five-episode mini-series, Failure is Not an Option, sponsored by Alaska Airlines. Dottie is one of the many stellar individuals who present public programs here at the Museum of Flight, so next time you plan on visiting, make sure to visit the museum's calendar to see what events and programs are on the docket. If you like what you hear, please rate the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you downloaded us from. You can contact the show at podcasts at museumofflight.org. And until next time, this is your host, Sean Mobley, saying to everyone out there on that good earth, we'll see you out there, folks. Music